This week on Writers Inc. I fell asleep that night for the first time in about a week. And when I woke up, I was a totally different person. I had suffered some sort of mental breakdown in a dream while I was unconscious. Literally, my vision had changed. Everything was in a fisheye lens. I was in this perpetual fight or flight mentality every moment of every day. I couldn't go out in the daytime. I was afraid of the day. I was afraid of cars and airplanes and buildings and anything that had any association with humankind. So I had to escape LA and a friend that I met in LA, he drove me all the way across America while I was out of my mind and deposited me back in Maine where I became a recluse for like seven months because my ego had been shattered. Nobody recognized me anymore. I wasn't even like a person, I was a shell. And I, in an attempt to get myself back into some modicum of sanity, I kept traveling all around the world for several years, you know, two and a half years. And ultimately it was in along the inside passage to Alaska on a four month solo journey that I decided, you know, I'm either gonna get my sanity back and we're gonna become a person again or I'm not gonna come back. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. How lucky are we two weeks in a row without Jay Thorne? <laughs> it, it, it's awesome. I can hear the birds outside singing. You know, like it, it, I feel like somebody just plugged in like a brand new Febreze air freshener in the room. It just feels a little lighter. You know, it's, it's, it's nice. It's funny. I, I like if I was just a listener to this show, I would be putting the pieces together like, oh, Jay is not doing interviews anymore. Jay's missed the show for two weeks. Like this dude has totally just burned out and is bailing on everything. <laughs> That's what my thought would be. <laughs> we can only hope, right? The the truth is, and I I, I know he was going to put out a press release, but we might as well just say it. He, he, he is the winner of Powerball and, and <laughs> like he, he's, he's trying to get his life in order. <laughs> I, I know Jay well enough that uh, if he if he did win the Powerball, he still would not stop starting podcast and writing and doing all the things he wants to do. <laughs> yeah. He might just buy a new pair of camo shorts. We all know something. the truth, though. The, IR, I, the IRS is the one that won Powerball. That's the truth of it. <laughs> yeah, that's prob that probably is the truth. Something like that. Take so. the lump sum. Take the lump sum. <laughs> Anyways, enough about Jay. Uh, he will be back. We're just messing. He's not. He's just had a lot going on. But uh, what's going on in the world of publishing, JD? Yeah, business stuff. So uh, Harper Collins is officially on strike. We talked about it a little bit last week. Um, you know, I, I stopped getting emails from Harper Collins reps with signatures on them that said we're going on strike. I'm literally getting nothing out of Harper Collins right now, um, which is understandable. I, I jumped online and looked real quick, and they're all out in front of the building picketing. And you know, it's it's a horrible thing, I guess, if you're on the other side of it as an author. Like you just kind of have to sit back and wait. You know, like I put out the little social media messages saying I'm supportive of them because I am. You know, I want to see those people happy because they, you know, in the end, if they're happy, they. they <laughs> helps me too. You know, I'm selfish. I want to, it's, it's all in the end, it's all about me. Um, 
But I, I think I think you're going to resolve it hopefully fairly quickly. I mean, from my side, it's a little frustrating because you know we talked about uh, the four MK series. It's supposed to be in Kindle Unlimited, um, which is some, you know something that we had arranged with originally with HMH, which was my original publisher. Then HarperCollins bought HMH, um, and right now they're not in KU. Um, and you know, like the last couple messages I received, like they should be in the KU at this point, but it's not, and there's literally nobody for me to follow up with. Um, but you know, that's a, it's one one issue out of a gazillion that these people are probably dealing with um so hopefully they get they get the bigger picture stuff resolved soon and you know everything can get back to, to business as usual um i had something else i just threw in my notes because we briefly talked about this a couple of weeks ago um amazon prime you know like if you get one of those messages saying hey we'd like to put your book in amazon prime i actually reached out to my rep at amazon to find out whether or not we're actually compensated for that um turns out we're not um, so they put your book in Amazon Prime, they make it available to all the Prime users for free, um, but you as the author don't actually get anything out of that other than the glory of saying, hey, my book is in Amazon Prime and you know a little bit of exposure that it might actually bring you. So I went from clicking yes, yes, yes on all of those to no thank you, no thank you, no thank you, um, and we'll, we'll see where that goes because I, I do believe they did pay you at one point, but they don't anymore. Yeah, they they I thought that they still did like... I don't think you ever got like a royalty for it, but I thought that they did some kind of like lump payment. It wasn't big. Like I think when it first came out, it was, it was definitely bigger than it became. I think it was like 1500 or $2,500 or something. Then it went down to like 600 at one. I thought they were still doing like 600 bucks. But apparently not. Maybe not. No, now now it's zero. And, and, you know, for me, it's frustrating because like when Fourth Monkey, you know, is in there and I see it in there quite a bit because the publishers get to do this, too. Um, you know, it's on the top of some of those charts and, and you know, we're literally not getting compensated for it. And I'm sure the exposure is helpful on some level, uh, but I would rather hold it back from Prime if that's the case and keep it in KU, you know, where we all get compensated. We all get exposure and it, you know, it works at a, a bigger level. Well, you're... Y- you're kind of in a different, like, I guess fourth monkey's a series, but like anytime I've done it, it's always been the first book in a long series. So for me, even if I'm not getting paid just for the primary to, you know, people are still buying the book. They're still, I'm assuming if they're Kindle unlimited subscribers, like it's still like selecting that option and not prime rating on the book. I don't like when they go to borrow it, but, um, but I could see how, like, if you have, you know, like I do, like, a six or seven or eight book series, how it could probably, it could be beneficial. So I think it depends on what your situation is. And I can totally see it from yours. Yeah. I mean, putting the first book for free in, in any series that works for a lot of people. So you just yeah. kind of have to look at your own model and decide whether that's, you know, makes sense for you or not. Uh, what else is going on? Um, I'm looking for co-authors. We've talked about this a little bit off the air. Um, so I'm, I'm breaking out um, the, the J.D. Barker model. Um, I'm bringing in co-authors. Um, I'm bringing in people to write outlines. Um, I'm basically trying to get to the point where I can put out between five and ten titles a year, um, with two of those being books that I've written solely by myself, and, and the rest are books that I'm working on with other people. Um, so I'm putting the call out there. If you are somebody who is interested in co-authoring a novel, um, somebody who is very good at creating outlines for fast paced thrillers I am looking for you um, and honestly this kind of came out of you know I was men- mentoring people for the longest time you know doing the you know just on the side because I enjoyed that I like helping somebody you know fine-tune their own book and and get it to a, a publishable level um, but you know people were paying me you know I think it was like 500 bucks a month and you know they'd be with me for 10 months you know a year some some of them even longer you know so they're paying a, a decent amount of money to, to learn how to do this and I honestly I don't need the money I, you know I just I kind of did that because it's it's more of a gatekeeper you know kind of filtered out the people yeah. that I really didn't want to deal with when you when you charge a little bit um 
So I'm kind of flipping this on its head. Like I'm basically taking people that, you know, I can, I can tell they know how to write. You know, it's, it's easy enough to see that spark in somebody's writing. Um, but they, you know, still need some work. They need some help to, to get over some of those hurdles. And, and eventually I think most writers will figure out a lot of those hurdles. You know, and it could be simple stuff from like head hopping to passive voice and, you know, little things like that, that we all run into at the beginning. Um, you know, but like I, you know, basically train that out of a lot of my mentoring students. So with this, I'm basically reversing that. I'm working with them to create the entire book from start to finish you know, walking them through the entire process that I have and basically creating a first rate thriller. And, and they're learning how to do that as we go. So, and, and I'm paying them instead of the other way around, which I, I feel better about. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes. But at, at this point, if you are somebody who's interested in anything like that, um, particularly the outlines, you know, there's a lot of people that are very talented at creating an actual story idea, um, but don't have the ability to actually create the book. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in finding you know, people like that. But just head over to my website and just click on the, the contact box and, and message me and we'll, we'll see where that goes. What are you guys up to? Christine, I'll let you go. Well, I'm uh, working on launching my uh, co-authored indie book series under a pen name. Uh, it's the first time I've ever done that. And I've been waiting on my cover. So <laughs> I'm like, I think my launch is going to get delayed because I keep like, where's this cover? And I'm getting crickets. So um, yeah, that's a little bit frustrating. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that and seeing how that works out, getting some pro tips from Zach over there on how to launch an indie series. And we'll see what goes on with that. Yeah. Part of the, uh, that's part of the learning process too, when you're doing this for the first time is figuring out how some long things take, like working with an editor or like getting a cover and stuff like that, you know? Um, cause I, like you said, I've been working with you and I know you guys had a date planned out, but there are things that can come up that are out of your control, <laughs> you know, and, and you learn from them and, you know, uh, and it can be as much as like, I know your situation is different because you guys have been publishing on Vela and you guys have a lot of stuff already done, but you know, like the earlier you can start trying to get your cover in, in the process and stuff to have it ready and all that can be really helpful instead of like waiting to the end. Again, I'm not saying y'all did that cause your situation is different, but um, it's one of those things you have to learn along the way. So um, there's a, there's a lot of steps to doing this and eventually they become second nature, but you know, you definitely have to fit, learn some stuff along the way with it. So. Yeah. It's been a bit frustrating to have everything ready to go except the cover. So, yeah. but you know, we're not financially dependent on that. You know, we've been putting it out on Bella. Bella has been paying us well. I just saw like last week, Bella's paid out like $10 million to their author and like yeah. since July of last year. So I can't complain about that. You know, we're lucky to be in a situation where it's like, we're doing fine with, with it financially, but I just want to get that going. And it's just like your hands are tied, but you know, I'm learning, so it, it'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. J- JD can make you a cover. Yeah. I was going to like, how did you go through the normal process? You hire just a normal cover design person that you've worked with. In she's past. actually very, in fairness, yeah. she's waiting yeah. on the paperback. The cover is actually done. Okay. So she's waiting for some reason they're delaying on getting her the wrap, the actual wraparound cover. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I, I had to create a new cover. Well, I didn't have to, but I wanted to create a new cover for Caller's Game because um, I like the one that I had, but you know, there was a couple elements on it that didn't quite work for me. Um, and I'd been fooling around with, with Dali, that um, AI for, for creating images. Um, and I literally jumped on there for maybe 10, 15 seconds, typed in a couple of keywords and came up with a background image that I, I absolutely loved. Um, so I took that over to 99designs uh, and put up a contest. And I think that was, I, I never pay attention to the price. I think it was like three 
$3.99 or $4.99 or something like that for designers to, to weigh in. But I basically provided that background image um, and the other elements that I had. So I've got a trademark version of my name, you know, so it appears the same on all of my book covers. I put that up there. Um, basically gave them all of those elements and let them go to go to town with it. And we created what I think is a, a pretty cool cover. It's one of my favorite ones so far out of all my books. And, you know, the main image, the background image was AI generated. Um, you know, so something like if I would have had to pay an artist, it would have cost me a small fortune. Um, and you know, the, the tricky part with that, like if you are going with an artist, you know, because they have to put so much time into creating those images, you know, you could be out of pocket for a couple of weeks, a month or whatever, as they create it, yeah. they might send it back to you and you absolutely hate it. You know, like, and with, um, these AI things, you know, you basically just hit regenerate, you know, do it again, do it again, do it again. And, you know, just keep rolling the dice until you get something you like, but it happens within a couple of minutes, um, which to me is phenomenal. But, you know, I, I couldn't put the cover together 100% on my own. The AI couldn't do it 100% on its own. I still had to bring in somebody who understood how to get those elements together um, and not only create the, the the main image, but also, you know, like you just mentioned, you know, you, you need an ebook cover, you need an audiobook cover, you need a hard cover. Um, you know, this one's got flaps, this one doesn't. What's the page count? Like, there's so many moving targets in that. You, you still need a real person to do that. Um, but I am very impressed with how those systems work. Um, and I think we'll, we'll throw an image of it up there in the, the show notes so people can see how this, this cover turned out. But I think everybody should give that a try. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in a very fortunate situation where I have a great cover artist who always knocks it out of the park and I never even have to ask for revisions. And she loves me because <laughs> I, for one, I've like, I've been working with her for probably five or six years and I've always pay right away. And she used to not charge nearly enough. And I was the one who came to her and was like, you need to drastically raise your prices. And, and even when she told me she's going to start charging, I was like, Nope, you need to go higher. Cause she was like super busy and was, but not making a money. I mean, she was charging at one point $120 for covers. And I mean, they're amazing. And I was like, no, you need to at least be charging like 300 or more. So she likes me a little bit and she kept me around when she started getting rid of clients. So I got really lucky there. It's very tough to find somebody that meshes like a hundred percent with your books. Now, like even with this one, you know, like I had the, the background image, we had my name. So like we knew how that was going to appear on the cover. So the only real X factor in it was the title of the book. Um, and you know, like surprisingly you put that up on 99 designs, you get a lot of different options and you know, you can look at them and like, this one looks horror. This one looks like a political thriller. This one looks like a spy novel. This one looks like this, this one looks like that. Um, so landing on that particular thing was, you know, probably the hardest part of this for me. Um, so if you can find somebody where you, you are able to get all those different things to mesh and lock them in to do multiple covers or like in your case to stay, stick around for a series, that's huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on my end, I'm just, uh, my book is with my editor. So I've been kind of having, I was, my plan was to have kind of a chill work week cause things have been crazy around here with, you know, a lot of things going on, but, um, I have, I've been working on dead end, which is the last book of my dead South series. I'm like 10,000 words into that. So feeling really, really good. Um, but I had, um, one of the things happened this week that you do not look for when you have children and JD, you'll probably have this at some point, but my daughter got lice, oh. <laughs> which sucks. Um, luckily she was, she was here. So there was some exposure, but the worst of it happened when she was at her mom's house. Um, so, but I still had to spend like so much time doing laundry and stuff. And, um, I did so much laundry that my, my washing machine got off balance and decided to take a walk and, and I couldn't open the laundry room door. 
it actually like <laughs> got in front of it and I had to call the maintenance guy and everything to come help me move it. And because he ended up doing what I didn't want to do because I'm renting, which he like slammed in the door to move it. I was like, well, I wasn't going to do that because I'm not going to break anything. But um, so, yeah, I've been, been d- doing that. And then my dad is on his way here as we speak. And uh, and which is it's really hard to get my parents to come here and visit <laughs> um, just to give you guys a little background. So my dad lived here from 2007 to 2014. And my mom never moved like because the housing market crashed and then she just they just decided they didn't get rid of their house. So my dad made the trip from Nashville to Jackson, Mississippi, just about twice a month for seven years. Wow. And which is like a six hour drive, six and a half hour drive. So he hates coming up here. (laughs) He hates the drive. But I finally talked him into it and he's going to come. He's retired now and stuff. So we're going to a hockey game tonight and going to hang out for a few days. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then I should have my book back next week. And uh, Haley will be with her mom mostly next week. So I'm going to just get to kind of buckle down and uh, and edit. That's what I'm going to be doing on Thanksgiving Day is working on edits. So looking forward to that. All right. Well, um, before we jump into our interview, we want to, of course, remind everybody that Writers, Inc. is bought brought to you by our friends over at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, Kobo obviously is, is, is a very author friendly platform. And if you're publishing your books uh, and you know, you're publishing on all platforms, you definitely need to be uploading directly through Kobo and KoboWritingLife.com. They have a super awesome uh, UI over there. And it's, like I said, it's super author friendly. Um, you, there's no exclusivity rights. You can, um, take advantage. They have awesome sales every month that you can sign up for and get involved in. Um, awesome, awesome, awesome uh, program over there and site. So get started today at CobaWritingLife.com. And with that, JD, who do we got today? All right, this is going to be a good one. We've got Alex Cody Foster. Um, so if you had a chance to jump on Netflix and watch the John McAfee story called Running with the Devil, uh, this is the guy that John McAfee hired to write, to basically ghostwrite his story um, while that was was being filmed. Um, the crazy part is Alex's personal story is just as nutty as, as John McAfee's, which he's going to go into. Uh, this was one of Jay's favorite interviews, um, probably one of mine as far as, you know, just as a listener. Um, un- unbelievable story. So here he is, Alex Cody Foster. So, you know, at the Writers Inc. podcast, we always like to provide survival tips for our listeners. So I thought a great first question for, for you would be, what's the best way to escape a kidnapping? <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> that's that's a, a, a big uh, double whammy there for me. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot, actually. Um, shoot. I think, I mean, if you if you're not you know, trained to be James Bond and you don't have a firearm and, you know, you're just a, a lowly little writer. I think you've got to use your wits, you know, <laughs> you have to outwit your kidnappers and by any means necessary. That's essentially what I did, I guess. I mean, I could have just gone crazy and, you know, tackled some people, but I would have been shot, you know, so I had to play it a little, you know, carefully. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a loaded question. It's, it's going to take us into the topic of conversation. So far, listeners like, where is this going? Trust us. Yeah. It's, it's going somewhere. I thought we were going to like open up with the weather or something <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, you know, subtle, but boom, I like it right. No, out of the man. Gate. No, I, I got to shake it up right from the start. That's how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too. So I can appreciate that. Yeah. I love it, man. Uh, you, you have a, a 
book coming out very soon. We'll have links in the show notes. It's called The Man Who Hacked the World, A Ghostwriter's Descent into Madness with John McAfee. I don't even know where to begin with this, man. Uh, the Netflix documentary, I'm, I know that kind of changed your life a bit. And, and your time spent with John has been crazy. So I think what I'd like to do is something I rarely do, which is I want to start, I want to go back and start at the beginning because I think that's going to set up the conversation about your relationship with John. Can you, t- can you talk a little bit about your experience on the street to LA? What, um, you know, what happened? What was that like? How'd you get out of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was never a great student, you know, in high school. I, I don't, I never went to college and, uh, I barely graduated high school because they take, they took points off your grades past a certain amount of days that you missed. I think it was like 60 and I missed more days than any kid in my academy's history because, you know, I, I just preferred to go skateboard and, <laughs> you know, hang out with friends and travel. And, and I did all the work and I did very well, you know, at school, but they took points off all my grades. So I had a horrible GPA. I think it was like 1.7 when I graduated. So no colleges wanted me anyway. Um, you know, I spent four years in my math classes, just reading novels. I was given, a, <laughs> yeah, I was given by my guidance counselor when I was almost expelled from school. Uh, the first time he, he came in on my behalf and gave a really touching speech to the staff that wanted to fire, uh, not fire me, but get rid of me, um, saying I was a problematic kid. So anyway, long story short, he saved my ass and I got to stay at school but he had me read a hundred of the top 100 books of the 20th century. He gave me a, a, you know, a piece of paper with all the titles. So that's what I did all four years math class. I just read books. You know, I didn't do the work. I just read novels. And so anyway, I've always loved telling stories and somehow find myself in the middle of them all the time accidentally. And LA was no exception. Um, When I got out of high school, instead of go to college and learn the yellow journalism that had been force fed to me my whole life already, I said, you know, I want to travel and I built a solar powered trike. We're going to drive it across country to film a documentary about social and environmental change. But, uh, the trike crashed and I was poor, so I couldn't fix it. So I was like, you know what, to hell with it. I'll just hitchhike. So I hitchhiked across America and I, that was a crazy harrowing experience in itself, but I ended up, penniless. Actually, that's not true. I ended up with a quarter in my pocket um, in Los Angeles getting off the bus. That's all I had. And my family, they're really, you know, I didn't really have much of a family growing up. I had my brother. Um, that's pretty much it. But I was kind of, I was just stranded. You know, I didn't have any way to go back. So I was 19 years old. I just turned 19. And I find myself uh, living on the streets and, um, you know, a lot of Los Angeles is very dangerous. I read a newspaper one of the first few days I arrived that said there are 51,340 homeless people in LA County, which is like 15 times the size of my hometown. That population. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. So, um, yeah, I lived on the streets for several months. I found out, you know, the safest place to sleep was by this golf course whose sidewalk was under construction. So they had a blue tarp over and so anytime it rained, I was protected. It was still really cold. And at night is awfully cold, you know, it gets into your bones. So that's when I realized why people use cardboard, you know, it was like, this is ingenious. It's cheap. It's plentiful. It's like a sleeping mat. So it prevents the cold from getting into you. Um, anyway, I did that for months and 
and it was crazy. You know, I met a lot of people and people with incredible backgrounds and stories. And, uh, one day I got kicked out of that golf course place. So I found myself sleeping on Venice beach for a few weeks and that's where everything changed. That's the, the night I became a writer was the night I lost my mind really. Wow. But, um, <clears throat> I don't know if I told you about this, but when I was, I was sleeping somewhat near the Santa Monica pier, but way off to the right, you know, way off, uh, and, you know, in the sand by the ocean where it was dark and I could be protected from the ATVs, from the cops that would patrol the beach to arrest people like me. And, uh, I, I was asleep one night and somebody woke me up and it, it was a kick to the stomach that woke me up. I thought I was dreaming, you know, but then, the, and then I saw the stars and I saw the, the ocean and then I saw this guy standing over me and he was like, get out of the sleeping bag. And I, I was just coming to, I didn't really realize what was going on. And he, he, um, he had a knife, a big, like Bowie knife, you know, it was huge. And then I realized I was awake and I got out of the sleeping bag a little bit. He said, take off your fucking pants. And it was, this was a really well-dressed man. He looked like he just got out of a cocktail party, you know, uh, and, uh, hair all slicked back, you know, um, handsome looking guy looked like a very well-educated, powerful person, you know, like a doctor or a lawyer or something. And that's when shit got real, as they say. You know, that's when I realized this is life or death, perhaps, because when I looked into this man's eyes, there's this vacancy of all human emotion. It was like, this wasn't his first rodeo. You know what I mean? And I was this idyllic, like, not idyllic. I was this idealistic, innocent, naive, you know, kid. And here I was facing perhaps true evil for the first time in my life. I didn't know what to do, but um, long story short... I pretended to take off my pants. And as I was doing that, I was sinking one of my hands into the sand. And it was just the most visceral experience of my life because I knew whatever happened, I wasn't going to make it to the morning, basically. So I threw sand at the guy and it shocked him for a minute. He was going to, he brought up the knife. He was like, all right, never mind. Like this kid's going away. Um, but I tackled him. And, and I beat the hell out of the guy, which I hadn't really done before. I hurt him a great deal. And I was traumatized. I grabbed my backpack and I ran. I ran to Third and Rose, which was the homeless encampment uh, near Lincoln Boulevard, where a lot of people, the homeless would stay. It was, it was a good community. So I was terrified. I ran over there and I was just trying to, um, trying to hide, I guess. But in the end, I thought I maybe killed the guy. You know, there, there was literal blood on my hands. And so I went back to the beach at sunrise and I went and I thought, you know, I'm going to turn myself in. I'm, I, I killed somebody and I'm going to have to tell the police, you know? And so I went and he was gone and there were footsteps leading away. And so that, that haunted me, you know, because for many reasons, I was out there trying to change the world. I was trying to do something right. And that happened and it was a wake up call. So I didn't sleep for like six days. And on the sixth day, seventh day, sorry, I finally did sleep, but I, I was on 
top of the wisdom tree in the Hollywood Hills. And I was looking out at everything and I just realized this world was sort of built to fail, not to get dark on you here, but that's what no, we're man, at. This is, keep, I'm not getting in the way. Keep going. Okay. Um, I was up on the wisdom tree, which is this tree on top of a mountain overlooking all of Hollywood, you know, all of Los Angeles, really. And I saw the airplanes and the smog and the, and the, you know, strip mall city before me and, all that stuff. And I was just like, man, this is just death. This is death, you know? And I fell asleep that night for the first time in about a week. And when I woke up, I was a totally different person. I had suffered some sort of mental breakdown in a dream while I was unconscious. And when I woke up, literally my vision had changed. Everything was in a fisheye lens. I was in this perpetual fight or flight mentality every moment of every day. I couldn't go out in the daytime. I was afraid of the day. I was afraid of cars and airplanes and buildings and anything that had any association with humankind, basically. So I was afraid of everything. So I had to escape LA and a friend that I met in LA, he drove me all the way across America while I was out of my mind and deposited me back in Maine where I became a recluse for like seven months. Anyway, um, I kept trying to get back my identity and because my ego had been shattered, nobody recognized me anymore. I wasn't even like a person. I was a shell of a human being. And I, in an attempt to get myself back into some modicum of sanity, I kept traveling all around the world for several years, you know, two and a half years. And ultimately it was in along the inside passage to Alaska on a four month solo journey that I decided, you know, I'm either going to get my sanity back and we're going to become a person again, or I'm not going to come back, you know? And remarkably, uh, you know, I meditated every day. I read the power of positive thinking probably 120 times. Um, when I stepped back on land four months after I was, you know, at sea, um, I looked at the airplanes and the buildings and all the people and I wasn't afraid for the first time in two and a half years. I, just, I had like 12 grand in my pocket from the boat because I was the sole chef and deckhand and everybody, you know, everything else that they needed uh, for this couple. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a memoir. <laughs> I was like 21. I just turned 22, I think. And uh, I don't know. I had no business writing a damn memoir at 22, but I felt like I had. So I started writing and it was, one of the most beautiful cathartic experiences I've ever had, you know, because it was like, people have asked me what, what's it like writing this book about McAfee? I think I told you this. I told, I tell them it felt like an exorcism (laughs) and that's what it felt like writing my first book. And, and anyway, I, I finished it. It was 850 pages. And, uh, anyway, I'm rambling, so I don't want to, take up this whole show. No, I want to be able to ask questions. No, man, I, I don't, I don't want to get in the way. I'm just riveted. Like I, this is, this is not like, uh, this is not a common path to publishing that we, that we often hear. And, and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I'm, and especially, I mean, well, let's, let's, I'll tell you what we can do. Let's, let's talk about your time with John, because I think that is that, that, uh, relationship you had was probably part in base to the, the the tribulations you went through as a kid, right? I mean, um, you you had you had told me that John kind of recognized that in other people, and and he didn't let people get close to him unless they had gone through that same type of madness. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. John told me that he only liked to hang around people who had walked through the fire. That's what he said. That's how he put it. And it was clearly evident because all the people in his circle, they were like ex-cons. They had murdered people, used to be drug addicts, uh, went to prison, um, had mental breakdowns, were somewhat insane, even currently. Everybody. And that's because I think John loved a good story. And he saw that the only people who have, you know, stories that we can cry about and laugh about and remember for the rest of our lives are those that are sort of tragic sometimes. And he had that sort of story. So that's, that's why he brought me on because of that. When he learned that I was homeless in LA, he told Jimmy, like, get him on the phone. Like, that's it. You know, we'd been talking with Jimmy for months about me becoming his ghostwriter. And again, I, I became a ghost when I was 22. So around the time my money ran out, I became a ghostwriter and I've been doing it ever since. It's been eight, eight years. Um, so I'd been a ghost three or four years at that point, I think I was 25, I believe when I met John. Um, and, and that's it. You know, John only hired me because he had learned that I lost my mind <laughs> on the streets of LA. And he was like, shit, this guy sounds cool. Get him over here. I want to meet him. That's how that happened. Wow. Now, like the, if, if listeners are interested in, in John's particular story, uh, you're you're featured in the Netflix documentary about him. Uh, obviously, he is. Uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously. He's no longer with us, and he's he's not uh, he's not going to to publish a memoir or a book um, that you were working on. Uh, and so you ha- are getting ready to publish the man who hacked the world. So uh, tell us about this project and why you decided it was it was time for you to write this book. Sure. You know, it's kind of funny, is that. This book is part of two books that I shelved in a long time ago. You know, I shelved the, the memoir. I wrote it at 22. So part one is that. Oh. And part two is the book I was writing for John, you know? So anyway, um, the whole experience with John, it haunted me a lot, you know, because I, I was this ghostwriter for like six and a half, seven months. And... I spent more time with him than any writer or representative of, of the media. You know, I lived with him and traveled with him for 40 days. You got kidnapped with, with him? him? Got kidnapped with him in Barcelona, Spain. You know, I was on the run from the cartel, allegedly. And I have reason to believe that we were. Um, so I went through a lot and we had a pretty remarkable end. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time with him and, and shelved the project when we fired each other mutually. Um, and I just, I didn't hear much of of him for years. And then he was arrested and then he died in prison, which was prophesied. Some very powerful man who offered me a million dollars to ghostwrite his book told me John was going to die in prison, uh, years before he was arrested. He told me Epstein was going to die in prison months before he was arrested. And I was like, how do you know that? He said, because I'm in a position to know. So I knew John when he was in prison. That was it. That was the end. And so anyway, before he died, some filmmakers reached out to me and they said, Hey, Alex, um, we're doing a documentary about John and your name keeps popping up. And we were wondering if you'd hop on a call. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I don't really want to talk about it. And they said, it's okay. We'll just do a 20 minute call. And if you're interested, we'll, you know, we'll go from there. So I did. 
And that 20 minute call versioned into like a hour long call. And it was so cathartic for me. It felt like a therapy session. And by the end of it, the producer, he said, Alex, we need you in this movie because we had no idea the depths of these stories after Belize, but you have all of that, all that content. You lived it. I said, all right, you know what? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. So, you know, did the movie and it was during the filmmaking that John died and yeah, I had very conflicted feelings and thoughts about that. But anyway, I, a lot of people reached out to me because my name got out there. My name got leaked somehow. And so the media were reaching out, uh, literary agents were reaching out, magazines. And I didn't respond, but I responded to one through mutual connection. Excuse me. And it was an agent named Michael Signorelli who had represented The North Water, which is one of my favorite novels the last 10 years, turned into a BBC miniseries of Colin Farrell. And, uh, anyway, this guy worked with an agency I've been pitching to for like seven years to no avail. And he came to me and he said, man, you need to tell this story, whether it's with me or somebody else, like you got to get out there. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I do for me, you know, I got to get it out there. So I, so I wrote the book and again, like the first book I wrote, it felt like an exorcism. It was cathartic. It was unlike any experience I've ever had before. And that's how the book came to be. You know, I think it's the best book that I've ever written, but I really don't know because I'm so close to it. I can't, I've got blinders on. Yeah. There's so much in there. Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you about, uh, I mean, I, I, first of all, I love this idea that um, you took a trunk novel or a trunk book and you, and you, you brought it back to life. I think that we often as writers, we write things and we feel like if, uh, if we don't publish them and hit a bestseller list immediately, it's a total waste of effort. And, and yet you went back years and pulled something you'd written before and, and, uh, and used that. So I think that's, that's amazing. I think the other thing too, that, uh, as I'm listening to you describe this, it, it's very clear to me that writing is your therapy, right? It, it, it seems as though, uh, you need to write to, to be able to move past obstacles or to, or, or to deal with trauma. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, very, you're very discerning and it's absolutely correct. Yeah. hundred percent, you know, writing, I'm a ghostwriter by trade, by profession, but that's not a job at all for me. It's a way of life. It's a, it's just the way that I, it's who I am, you know, it's identity that I got and, and I love it. There's hundred percent. There's some real irony in there in that you're claiming, uh, your identity is a ghost. You talk about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So it's funny. Um, the dedication page in my book, it reads like this for all the ghosts, both living and dead. So it's sort of ironic. It's it, there are multiple themes. You know, the the subtitle of the book is A Ghostwriter's Descent into Madness with John McAfee. So the ghost word here is multifaceted, it has multiple meanings because. For one, I've always been a ghost. You know, I, you know, I, I was the kid in high school who didn't eat a single lunch in the lunchroom ever because I was like afraid of people. I was shy, so I just hang out in the library stacks and read books every lunch. You know, and I was the kid who was a ghost on the streets of Los Angeles and who met all the fellow ghosts. And I continued to be a ghost without an ego or an identity for years, and I got one. And then what did I do? I started telling ghost stories, you know, in a way I started telling stories of people 
who'd had similar lives and experiences. And the biggest one of all was John McAfee, who died. And now he's a ghost <laughs> in a supernatural sense, perhaps. So hopefully I answer your question. But yeah, the, the theme really is that we all have a story and that we all are kind of a ghost in some respect, whether we're alive or we're dead, whether we're haunting the halls of some Transylvanian castle or we're, you know, we're struggling with an addiction or with a cheating spouse or we're single mom for five kids because the husband ran off, you know, or whatever the case may be at some point in our lives, every single one of us has been a ghost or felt like one, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I know that a lot of our decisions we make have nothing to do with logic. I mean, that's, that's pretty well documented. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it seems a bit of a paradox to me in that you, you identify as a ghost, you, you kind of have spent your life in, in the figurative and literal shadows. Uh, and, and now you're publishing your first book. Uh, do you feel like this is, this is a, a sort of a one-off exorcism as you called it, or do you feel this might be a new chapter in your life? I think it's a new chapter. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a new chapter. And here, this is what I've realized, you know, I've spent all this time, eight years capturing the stories of others and hiding my name, you know, but now I, I've realized there's so much power in a name. There's so much power in a brand. And, and, you know, I, I want to continue writing books like this one. It doesn't necessarily have to be my memoir, you know, anymore. I've told that story, but the stories of others, and I will put my name on the cover. And I think, Ultimately, it will fall under the same umbrella of true crime and, you know, people who have had incredible life-changing experiences that can really get to the core of a human being and make them think, you know, I'm just going to continue doing it. I'm, and it, it's really interesting you brought this up because I've been conflicted about it. And someone, I have a client right now, it's kind of well known, and they, they said, Alex, I think it'd be great if you had your name on the cover because you know, you're going through all this branding right now and a lot of people are paying attention and it could be really helpful for the book and stuff. And I said, you know, I'm humbled and, and I, maybe that is true, but I don't know if I could put my name on anybody's cover right now because I have to figure out what genre I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to stick with because I'm a ghost. I've, I've worked in so many different genres. So I'm like, I don't want people to read a, <laughs> a true crime crazy memoir and then see me on a book about, um, cats. <laughs> I think it might be counterintuitive there. Yeah. It's not, it sounds like what you're saying is that this, this book is a rebirth for you in a way, but you yet, you haven't figured out who you want to become. That's entirely true. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think maybe just, just keep writing in the same vein as this memoir, you know, true crime, uh, autobiographical elements, you know, I'm a novelist at heart. I have seven unpublished novels that I've written. So I will probably try to publish my favorite one of those under a pen name. <laughs> you know, I mean, look what happened to JK Rowling, right? Yeah. Um, when she stopped writing the Harry Potter series, she came out with uh, her first sort of adult novel and it, get, it just got lambasted. I think, I think largely not because she's a bad writer because she's not, but because her identity was so, um, interwoven with YA with young adult fiction. So yeah, I'm trying to also be strategic about this. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're also, uh, very admirably, uh, 
helping others along the journey. And I think that's, for me as a writer, I've always felt a call to, to teach and to lead and to help, help people who are uh, behind me on the path. I don't think it's necessarily, um, I think it's more about where you are on the journey versus what your experience or skill level is. So can you talk about the, uh, the university that you, you've started and, and sort of um, how that's going to help other people maybe get into this business? Absolutely. So ghostwriting is the best kept secret of the writing world. That's what I realized very soon after I became a ghost. I was 22 and I went from making like $8,000 a year to like a quarter million a year. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't know this was possible because they always said, oh, you want to be a writer? Don't quit your day job. Yeah. And so <laughs> the motto basically of ghostwriting university is quit your day job, or at least like start ghostwriting and making money and earning a, an amazing income and living an incredible life by doing what you love and then stop working the day job, you know? So, um, again, I don't have a traditional education as you know, and I went into this, uh, very green. I had no idea about the industry. So I had to teach myself everything, you know, interviewing SEO advertising, um, how to write a book that becomes a bestseller versus not because, you know, I, I read dozens of the best-selling books of the 21st century and the 20th century and sort of cultivated a concept based on that and what I thought would sell books. You know, what are the things that all these books had in common? You know, The Godfather, Jaws, you know, what are the things that these books have in common? You know, Fight Club or All the Light We Cannot See. So I've, I just try to figure that out and factor that into my work. And um, along the way, I've had, you know, some bits of success and I've had a really interesting career and worked with a very fascinating people and, you know, options, some books for two uh, film producers and stuff. And so, um, what I tried to do with the course, I, I just realized, you know, if I knew all of this stuff when I was 22, when I was struggling as a ghost, man, I would be, I'd be eight years ahead of the game. You know? <laughs> and so anytime over the years, when someone has come up to me and asked about ghostwriting, how do I do it? How do I become it? become one. I mentor them. I help them in any way possible. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are, what they're doing in life. If they need, you know, if they need information and help from me, that's number one. I do it no matter what I'm doing it currently with like three people, you know, who reached out to me. And so I thought, you know, given that when I was advertising like six years ago and 85% of the people that clicked on my ads wanted to know how to become a ghostwriter, I thought there's a huge demographic out there. 80% of nonfiction books are written by people like me. Yeah. They're ghostwritten, 80%. And you have this burgeoning gig economy and we had the COVID pandemic. It was two years of people stuck in their homes and getting laid off. They couldn't go to work. They couldn't earn an income. And I'm like, I feel like this meets a market need as well. So, so I created Ghostwriting University, which is this online course. It covers 72 different subjects from A to Z all you need to know really to get started in the industry. And it's for writers. You know, it's not for people who want to learn how to become writers. It's for skilled writers. Um, and anyone 18 or younger can take the course for free. Uh, it's, you know, I gave it my best shot. I just kind of poured my heart out into this project in the hopes that people can learn how to do what I do and how to escape the monotony of the nine to five life, which is what I've managed to do. And, you know, I work, all over the world. I travel to Europe every single year. I have family in Germany. So, you know, I'll, I'll take, I'll be on a zoom call in this like really busy cafe. I'm drinking a, an Aperol spritz on the streets of Venice. 
you know, and someone's like, holy shit, where are you? Where are you? <laughs> oh, I'm in Venice this week, you know, or, you know, they hear bell tolling and birds taking flight in the distance and, and they're like, what's, what's going on in the background here? And I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's noon. You know, we're in Spain right now and it's fun and it's, I, everybody should get a shot at that. You know, in my opinion, everybody deserves to be happy, but sometimes it takes them a long time to find their passion. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a factory of this passion that I have and uh, send it out into the world. And hopefully, you know, it can um, benefit people. I love that. And I love the fact that you've set it up so that it's self-selecting, right? You're not going to get, you're not going to get people who are just looking to turn a quick buck or they're looking for a hack. Um, You're basically saying, listen, you got to know how to write. And if you know how to write and you're interested in this, then I can help you get, take the next step. Precisely. Exactly. And that's something I've had to talk um, about with people who say, you know, they send me an email on like 200 misspellings. And they're like, I want to do this. I want to take your course. And I'll always say, you know, save your money, learn how to, you know, write effectively first, check out on writing by Stephen King and, you know, like get, get more involved with writing and then take a ghostwriting course. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. I don't, I'm not a snake oil salesman. I don't need anybody's money and I don't want to do people into taking it if it won't benefit. No, them. I mean, in all transparency, you don't need to be doing ghostwriter university. You're doing just fine with your, your ghosting yeah. gigs and your book. I am. Right. I'm too, I'm too busy. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. I love it, but it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, I, the piece of advice maybe for someone hearing this for the first time is get your writing chops in order and then, and then decide if, if ghostwriting is, is something you want to do. Because I think, there are going to be certain writers who either don't want to or cannot subject the ego, um, and and they may not be able to to not put their name on a cover. And I think that's an important distinction to make too. That's a really good point, man. And you nailed it. It's something I've had to utilize before in in my practice, and I actually have turned away clients because I I'm very much you know about suspending my own ego to step into the shoes of another person and write their story. But if they're completely incapable of suspending their ego and judgments and biases, I can't really write their book. Yeah. You know I, mean? I don't, I don't do political books because I'm apolitical. You know, I'm not here on the left or on the right or in the middle. I'm not on the spectrum. I just, it's just, it's not in my lexicon or my world. And the same with religion. I've read all the holy books. You know, I've derived what I think is, my own spiritual outlook on life and my own political outlook on life. I won't share it with anybody because I don't want to, you know, um, disrupt. I don't want to push people away. And anyway, so what I'm saying is um, I've had clients who reach out to me and they're like, you need to be a Christian to write this book. You need to be a Trump supporter to write this book or Biden supporter to write this book. You know, you need to have these thoughts on this situation and I, I just turn them away I, because it's untrue. I don't. I'm completely unbiased. I'm completely neutral. And if you're unable to suspend, you know, your own political or religious ideologies, if, if you're, you want to be a ghost and, you know, if, if you can't do that, then you can't really do the job. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I went against one of my own statements in that word vomit. But essentially <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is like I, I turn people away when they demand that I be a certain way or think a certain way, I turn people away then. And I also wouldn't be able to do my job effectively if I couldn't suspend my own beliefs Mm -hmm. and listen, you know, 
shit, maybe it'll change my beliefs. Maybe I'll listen to somebody who has opposing beliefs and I'm a very thoughtful person. So I will entertain it and I'll really think critically about it. Maybe it'll change my beliefs. That'd be great. Cool. Everybody wins. Yeah. You know, so you got to suspend judgment. You got to, you know, leave your ego at the door. I love it. I got one, one more question for you. Uh, beyond the obvious excitement of, of the book publishing and, and the recent attention you've gotten from uh, the Netflix documentary, beyond that, uh, what, are, what are you, Alex, excited about? What, what is getting you out of bed? What does your hopeful future look like? I'm excited about moving to Europe. Um, it's something I've always wanted to do. I have dual citizenship. I'm a European citizen as well because uh, I'm German. Um, I want to live in the place where all those tragic writers drank themselves to death, <laughs> which is Ireland. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, my other half uh, and I, we're going to move there with our dogs and just, I'll probably close down the, the log cabin here for a year and just take a year off, you know, focus on ghostwriting university. Don't write three different books in a year, but just work on one of my passion projects and live on the coast of Ireland and then travel a lot throughout Europe. That's what I'm excited for because it's been nonstop since I was 22. I haven't had a vacation. I barely have days off. I'm always thinking and I'm always working. So it'd be nice to just transform that a little bit. All right. So that was a great interview. And uh, that interview was brought to you by our friends over at Atticus. Uh, create professional print books and eBooks easily with the all-in-one book writing software, book editor with the word count, goal tracking, cloud storage. They've got it all. And uh, Dave and his team are constantly iterating Atticus. So uh, we definitely uh, recommend you check it out. So check it out at atticus.io. And uh, wow. Yeah, JD, you said it beforehand. I I know Jay had mentioned this is one of his favorite interviews and uh, you loved it too. And this might have had one of my favorite quotes and we probably need to do a coffee mug for this one. Um, the night I became a writer was the night I lost my mind that I, I like rewound that and listened to that like three times. I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, JD, we'll start with you. Uh, what, what do you think about Alex? Um, well, first of all, either of you ever been homeless before? No, no, no. Fortunately, I have not. Yeah, Yeah, me me either. Um, Years back when I worked at um, a magazine called 25th Parallel, uh, which was run by the editor of Circus Magazine, um, he used to send us on some crazy assignments. Like I I actually got sent to uh, a high school down in Miami called American High, and this was when 21 Jump Street just came out, and I was working on that that show. Um, And I basically went undercover as a student in in the worst high school in America. Um, I lasted for all of maybe three hours before they pulled me out and and said that they think you're 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 a narc you're this you're that like we can't oh wow for safety reasons we can't leave you in there um but that same editor had sent one of our other authors um to a, a homeless encampment um and had him live there for a week um and it, it literally changed his life um you know just being in that particular environment in that world and just being so you know it's it's a whole other universe i mean you you you, you might be a mile from where your house was but like it's just it's crazy so um yeah, so that's basically the closest I've ever got is talking to that person and helping work out that story when he, he wrote it up. Um, I can't imagine going through what this guy went through. And, you know, like he sounds like the sanest person in the world, you know, <laughs> when you talk to him. Um, but he's obviously been through a, a lot of stuff. Um, 
I think you know, like working with John McAfee too. And again, like I don't know if have you guys seen that that show, Running with the Devil. Have you watched it? I'm going to now. Not yeah. Yet, so yeah, yeah it, it's a wild, wild ride. So I can just imagine what it was like working with him. Um, writing memoirs and ghostwriting, you know, I get questions on this all the time. Um, it can be one of the most lucrative things that, that writers can do. Um, my, some of my biggest paydays have come from writing memoirs. And some of those paydays have actually come from approaching, in one case, I walked up to a basketball player. I was courtside at a, at a game in Miami. And I walked up to one of the players and I said, hey, have you ever considered writing a memoir? Um, they all want one. One, but they don't know how to write it. Um, they all have the financial means to get it done. Um, it's it's sort of you know for sports people, for uh, political figures, it validates their career to have a book out there. You know, it's a talking point. It's something that they can put out. Um, so in most cases, like I would work out a deal where they would you know they would agree to the book. I would write the book. I had the contacts at the publishers, um, so I was able to ne- help negotiate a deal. And they typically got a fairly large advance because they knew it was going to sell to a big audience. So then me as the writer, I would get a, a fairly large chunk of that that advance which was negotiated ahead of time. So it could be extremely lucrative. Yeah. Um, one interesting thing about him was, you know, this is definitely, this guy should not just be ghostwriting. His story itself is way too, he has way too many life experiences that he can put in fiction and nonfiction. Um, I, I want to hear Christine's thoughts, but JD, you actually led into something I had written down to ask you. So um, it fits in perfectly. So I was asking you now, but um, he mentioned that, when when he ghostwrites, there are certain topics and genres he sticks away, he stays away from. Um, did you did you do anything like that, or were you just kind of like willing to take on any and all projects? You, you really have to make yourself a, a blank slate because um, you know, I've written political books for people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of them was for a woman that came very close to being our president. Another one was on the other side, you know, like it, you, and you hear these very different, you know, ideas and theories. Um, you're basically there to document it, you know, so like your own thoughts really shouldn't play a part in that. Um, when I write these, I tend to um, sit down with the person that, it, you know, the memoir is about. Um, we usually spend a couple of days together. I've got a tape recorder uh, and I just, you know, we ask, you know, there's a lot of, it's a conversation, you know, I get as much talking out of them as I can. I just try to get them to open up, you know, when they hit on a particular particular topic that seems to resonate with them. I get them just, you know, tell me as much about it as they, they possibly can. Um, and I try to use that, that tone, their language, their, you know, their, their vocal patterns, all those things. I try to bring that into the actual book, um, where you have to be careful is you don't want your own thoughts to actually flow into that. You know, yeah. so if, if, if you identify as this on the political side and, you know, you're interviewing somebody on the other side of that aisle, um, you don't want your own thoughts to, to, to tinge that in any way. Um, so, you know, you have to be very careful that you have to be Switzerland as you, as you write it. And a lot of authors can't do that. Um, but again, if you can, it, it can be ext- extremely lucrative or it, go with the, sport, feel- the sports figures, actors, it, actresses, it, they all need them. It feels almost like you almost have to like play a character or be an actor when you're a ghostwriter. Like you have, like you have to, like you said, get in that person's head. You don't necessarily have to believe in what they believe in, which I think was really interesting thing he said was, you know, having people come to him saying like, Oh, you need to be a Christian to write this book and stuff. And I don't, if you, if you come at it with the right mindset, like you're saying, and you do your research and you get to know the person, you can kind of, again, like treat it as 
you're writing a character or something like that. You know, does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. No, the way that, that, that played, at least in my experience, the way that that played out, um, a lot of times a manager or something like a handler for a particular person would be the one negotiating the, the book idea and looking for that ghostwriter. So they have their own thoughts on who that ghostwriter should be. So they want a ghostwriter who's going to be similar to their person. Um, you know, whether it's an actress or, you know, whatever, but they want somebody that they feel is going to jive with that particular person. Um, what I had to sell them on, and I, and I personally, the way I think you have to write the book is you have to become that person that you're writing about. You know, you're, you're basically, you're taking their words, you're putting them down on paper. It's all supposed to sound like them at the end. It's not supposed to sound like you. Um, so you have to, like you said, you have to become a character. You have to become the person that you're actually interviewing that is supposed to be the one writing this book. Yeah. And that makes sense to me because when we're writing fiction, we're writing characters that are not us. We're writing, you know, what are, you want to call them villains or antagonists. And I'm not that person. I don't believe what they believe or I'm not going to do what they're going to yeah. do, but we can still write them in a compelling way. Yeah. Th that's one of my favorite emails I get from people is when they will email me and they'll say, I can't believe you said this in a book or, you know, that this, this person acted this way. And I'm like, those aren't my personal beliefs. Like it's, there are all different kinds of people in the world. And if I made every single character in my book be just like me, it'd be a pretty freaking boring book. Like, you know, that's why I think it's important to, um, you know, and what I, what I really think is fascinating about Cody is, um, or Alex, I'm sorry. Um, uh, is, again, I, I go back to like all the, like as a writer, the more life experience you have, the more compelling your stories are going to be. And, you know, I think it's important to, you know, have lived and done different things and also, you know, talk to different people and get an idea of how different people live and stuff like that, which is, um, I could definitely see as a ghostwriter, you know, JD, not to come back to you on that, but like how you would, you, you probably, uh, from talking to so many different people and writing all those books, like it probably did help your own fiction writing in a lot of ways. Cause you get to see how all these different people live and stuff like that, which is kind of, which is interesting. Well, it's sort of like we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, you could write a story that takes place in new Orleans, but unless you've actually been in new Orleans, there's certain nuances you're never going to pick up on. You know, Alex had mentioned a couple of things, you know, he had mentioned, you know, where he slept near Santa Monica pier, um, and why he slept in that particular place to avoid the cops on ATVs. Like he has, you know, a certain place for that. Me as an author, ghost writer, whatever, I would never know that, you know, unless I, I somehow stumbled into it in Google, um, you know, knowing that this, this particular blue tarp offers shelter or, you you know, this is a high traffic area. This isn't, um, you know, just knowing the, the routes of the police, the people that can cause trouble for you. Um, like that just adds an authenticity to a story that, you know, you're just not going to get through research unless you sit down with somebody who actually was homeless. It's going to explain all this to you. Uh, Christine, I'm curious what your thoughts were on, cause I know that you're someone who you obviously write, but you also are involved in some author services and stuff like editing and stuff. So what are, uh, his, his ghostwriting, you know, teaching, and I think ghostwriter university is that what it was called, I believe. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, but it sounded really cool. What were your thoughts on that? It was really cool. And, uh, you know, I thought it was really interesting when he said that he did this, all of this analysis of different books and movies to really drill down and figure out what makes a bestseller from a fiction standpoint. He was looking at Jaws and the Godfather and all the light we cannot see. And I was like, man, I just want to take your class so you can tell me what is it that makes a bestseller like give me all the <laughs> secrets so I definitely thought it was a compelling pitch um you know I think he said he wanted to make a factory of passion which which was a cool quote so yeah I'd love to hear more of his thoughts on that or your thoughts what makes a bestseller 
Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, like I think, you know, I, I read a lot and it's funny. I'm listening to uh, Lee Child's got a master class out right now um, that I've been going through. And one of the lines that I actually wrote down was, if you're not a reader, you'll never be a writer, um, which we've all heard a million times. But, you know, it's, it's fun to hear it in Lee Child's accent. Um, but, you know, I, I read a ton. And like every time I close a book, you know, there's a couple thoughts that go through my head. You know, why was this book good? why was it bad? You know, what did I like? What didn't I like? But like, I, I try to, you know, pigeonhole myself into basically creating a book report for myself and, and to find those particular things. Um, I know Jay was going to try and get a hold of that list of the, the hundred books that Alex mentioned. Um, so we can put it in the show notes, but I, I think it's very important for authors in general to do that. You know, you can read a book for enjoyment. Um, but if this is going to be your career, pick it apart. You know, Jaws is a fantastic example. Why does that book work? You know, like, would it have worked as well without the movie? You know, like if the movie never happened, would we even know that Jaws was a book. Totally different too. Like, Absolutely. Book is totally different than the movie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I actually love about that book without going off topic here is, you know, you actually get into the shark's head. Yeah. It has the POV <laughs> of the shark. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that's an amazing thing. That's a very difficult thing to do from an author's standpoint. Which the shark is not named Jaws, by the way. I love how people <laughs> name the shark Jaws. Technically, his name was Bruce. That's what they called him on on set. So, <laughs> isn't that name of the Nemo shark? That's too? where it's from. It's because <laughs> yeah, it's because it. Bruce was the shark from Jaws. That's why they named the one in Finding Nemo Bruce. Oh, that's hilarious. But um, yeah, not to go. Now we're gonna go off on Jaws. But um, I, I like to um, you know, something he talked about uh, around ghostwriting, which uh, was. That can be a very, very, and I mean, JD can speak to this because you've, this is kind of was your path. Like, um, it, it can be a very lucrative way to get, to start a writing career. And, um, like if you're someone who is at a day job and you want to work for yourself and you want to write for a living, like this could be a really good path for you, you know? Um, now in saying that, like, because I, I know, I know very few authors who make a hundred percent income on their royalties. Like, you know, JD, even you, like, I mean, I'm, I know that you could just live off your royalties, but you guys do your real estate, you know? So like that's, um, so, but, um, but one thing I think he's that they talked about, which was really interesting too, was the distinguished of like being able to check your ego at the door and, and not have your name on the book, which I know JD from experience, like you, that kind of eventually got to you and, and became kind of a difficult thing for you to keep seeing these books at the top of the New York Times list that you wrote, but like weren't getting credit for. Yeah. You know, honestly, it was the the fiction ones that really bothered me because yeah. that, that was really coming out of my head. You know, like it, the, the story itself was me, but somebody else was taking credit for it. Um, so those, I didn't those know are, you really did that. I thought oh, you yeah. mostly had done nonfiction. No, it was, it was a mix of both. It, Interesting. It's, okay. The, the thing is when you're doing ghostwriting or writing memoirs, um, all, all that type of stuff, you know, again, it can be lucrative. I've used that word a million times. Um, if, if you write a book for, you know, a memoir for somebody that you typically see on TV or a well-known person, you're going to get anywhere from a half million to a million dollars. Like my biggest payday was 1.2 million for writing one book. Um, you know, like that's, you, you can't turn that away, you know? So like, it's, it's easy to turn off the ego when you, when you've got a payday like that on the other side. And it, it for me, it's, I, I have no problem doing it if it's a, a nonfiction thing. You know, if I'm telling somebody else's story, if I'm helping somebody tell their story, um, it, I, I had the, the biggest hurdle again was just writing the fiction. You know, when I started seeing fiction projects, I mean, one of them and, you know, there's NDAs here, so I can't name names, but it was a, a New York times bestseller that had written uh, 50% of his novel. Um, he was way behind deadline and had to go out on book tour. So he had to finish up 
that particular book. So they brought me in to finish it. So I wrote 50% of that book and, and watched it do very well. So like, those are the things that, that really bother you. But yeah, I mean, if you want to break into that world, again, go, you know, talk to, you know, political people, talk to um, sports figures, talk to, you know, actors, actresses, anybody in that, that, you know, they're all looking for a memoir. Uh, if you know how to tell a story, you could be part of that project. Right on. Well, uh, it was definitely a fascinating interview. Like Jay wasn't joking when he said uh, that how fascinating Alex was, and we didn't even we didn't even touch on the fact that he almost killed somebody. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it was um, his, his story was incredible, and like I said, someone who has um, that much experience in life, it's good to hear that he's actually going off and doing his own stuff now, and you know, even going to write fiction under a pen name, which I think. Uh, which I, I can understand why he would want to do that too and kind of not have his own name attached with all the notoriety he's getting for other stuff. So I think that's a really smart thing too. So, but, uh, well, JD, usually this will return over to you for no, the I'm, guests. I'm, I'm going to slap it right back to you. Who do we have coming on next week? Yeah. So next week we've got, um, my good buddy, Dan Padavana. Um, Dan has me and Jay have been friends with Dan for years. Uh, Jay actually wrote a book with him like in 2004, 15 or 16 or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, Dan, Dan started out writing like horror and post apoc stuff like me and Jay, and we became friends in that way. And, um, then turned to writing thrillers and he's indie published and has just been absolutely, uh, no pun intended murdering. <laughs> um, and, and, and just absolutely crushing it. Um, was able to retire early from his job as a weatherman, uh, and, and is, uh, is, is doing awesome. So it'll be a really, really good one next week. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing Dan and, and catching up on all the stuff he's been doing. So everyone should look forward to that one next week. So, um, all right. So if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersinc.com and sign up now. We'll see you next week and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.